TV. And welcome back to another episode of Doctor Who, Too Hot for TV, or maybe Too Hot for Radio, as this one should be called. As you may have heard at the end of the last episode, Jack has given up podcasting for a new and better life. So I'm going to be rotating a bunch of different guests. We've had an awesome amount of feedback of people that want to join the podcast and the certain people I'm chasing who I've always wanted to get on. But right now, I'm joined by almost a Doctor Who Too Hot for TV regular. It's Mark from On the Time Lash. Mark, how are you doing? I'm all right. I won't read too much into some people I've always wanted to spend time to. But anyway, here's Mark. (laughs) I mean, you're absolutely somebody that I wanted to spend time with, but I've already done that. We have, yes, indeed. But I've also brought themed booze with me because, you know, on the time lash. Have you really? I have. I've brought... Um, I've, what have you got? I've got a can of Time Travelling Taxi by the Brew York ah. Brewery. Because that's that's what we're about to embark upon with our listeners, is in a time travelling taxi with a playlist that would get us a shit review on Uber. Were we to be <laughs> well, on that? I didn't go for theme booze. In fact, I forgot that, obviously, on, when we get on the time lash, I'm going to do theme booze. But I do have booze, and it's this Arbor Sea Bomb and there was a lot of C-bombs dropped when listening to some of these things, so... It's also what I'd like to call, call the Becker from now to now. <laughs> or C-bomb. That, I think that's a good name. That'll catch on at some point. So, we're talking about the musical careers of people involved in Doctor Who today. And I use musical careers in inverted commas, mm. but essentially we listen to their output so the Doctor Who fans out there don't have yes. to. Can you remember how this podcast and this conversation came about initially? Vaguely. I think the Peter Capaldi album had come out, or maybe it was even just the first single or something like that. Yeah. And we just got chatting, as you do on these kind of um, message threads and whatnot. And then we ended up with what we're about to do now. Yeah, I mean, I should add that there were three other people in that thread, none of whom took up the <laughs> offer to uh, to join us on this adventure. Sure. So you are the only one wild enough, stupid enough, sympathetic enough to my cause yeah. To, <laughs> yeah. to want to come and do this. But uh, I'm very glad you did, because, boy, has it been an adventure. Hasn't it? Yes. So uh, before we go into the whole musical careers of Doctor Who stars... Can you tell me about your history, what you grew up listening to, what your favourite bands are, what you're listening to now? Sure. I... Basic bitch, really, as a teenager. (laughs) Um, The Smiths. Used to love The Smiths. Mm -hmm. Radiohead, you know. um, Stuff like that. Got into Nick Cave. Because I kind of... uh, From The Smiths, which was kind of... That kind of storytelling that Morris is really good at. It felt like the next step up was the sort of storytelling and the sort of the much darker kind of stories and kind of more mythical stories of like Nick Cave or somebody like that. So yeah, that mostly as a kid, Bowie loved, you know, loved him as well. But I, I listened to, I was, I always really struggle when people ask me like, what music I'm into. I'm just like, ah, oh, loads, loads of stuff. Just, you know. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I feel much the same just for the listener's benefit. I grew up kind of listening to, I listened to a lot of Guns N' Roses and things like that when I was younger. Then I got quite into hip-hop. And then I moved to London in like 2005 and got into indie and then 80s music. And that's when you get into like Bowie and the Smiths and Echo Mm. and the Bunnymen and all sorts of things like that. And then in about 2011, I just stopped listening to anything that was new. And uh, I've been flying with that ever since. Yeah, I think that's about... Well, actually, there's a couple of bands... Especially now that I'm kind of working from home a lot. It's like I do listen to Six Music. Yeah. Like a proper working from home. Of course, yeah. Hipster wanker, you know. <laughs> um, 
and that has introduced me to some newer bands that I quite like, like people like Wet Leg and, and stuff like that. But yeah, generally, I, I still listen to the same old shit. Yeah, me really. too. So, what I tried to do today was, I say today, over the last few weeks, is find a song. Initially, I said, can we find a song from a musical, from a stage show, from a record of each of the Doctors? And the answer to that is no, categorically, <laughs> you can't. Then I was just, I think you said, well, how about every era? And, you know, there may be a little bit of cheating here. Mm. Um, and we're going to kind of have the, the a roundabout chat about all sorts of stuff. But obviously, we're going to start off with the 1960s. Now, the 60s, it's very much novelty records, I think. And so, um, just to be clear to anybody listening, we're not including any incidental music or, you know, because the first Doctor Who release is technically like the theme tune on a 7-inch or something like that. Yeah, that's true. But the first thing to come out is Roberta Tovey's Who's Who, which came out in August 1965 uh, on 7-inch record. It's a very rare record. You can't, you can't get a copy of it on Discogs. And she played Susan, or Susie, in the Dalek films. I mean, how would you describe this, this little foray into Doctor Who? I would describe it as a sci-fi forerunner to uh, Clive Swift's granddad's uh, single <laughs> from whatever year that was. <laughs> It's Amazing. a child singing about their magical grandfather, uh, Doctor Who. Now, I hate the sound of a child singing who can't really <laughs> sing, so this really grated on me. But you know, I mean, I'm sure it was a, I'm sure it was a relatively small hit and tied into Dalek Mania, and it's that perfect kind of song that you've got that you can put over any montage of how big were the Daleks in yeah. the, the '60s and the '70s. So it works like that. I wanted to learn a bit about the people behind it. So it's the Malcolm Lockyer Orchestra, mm. who had a ton of releases right through from the mid-50s to the late 70s. But the B-side contains an ominously titled song, Not So Old. It's basically saying you don't really have to wait to be for her to be old enough to be married or she'll be, mar- or she'll be old enough very soon. Different time, isn't it? Different yeah. time. <laughs> So there we go. So that was a kind of a dark B-side there. Bloody hell. Which, uh, you know, we'll, we'll gloss over. Is that why it's so rare on Discogs? Because everybody's just fucking burnt it. Quite possibly, quite possibly. It's probably used in a court case somewhere against Malcolm <laughs> Lockyer, wherever he is. Uh, something that wasn't released, but it would be remiss of us not to talk about, is the Ballad of the Last Chance Saloon from the Gunfighters. <laughs> why do you think people hate this so much? I think people hate it so much because Doctor Who shouldn't be a musical or shouldn't have anything that's vaguely nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Yeah. You know, also because Doctor Who fans take themselves far too seriously. Indeed. And the gunfighters, although it's a kind of weird place to set a kind of rompy comedy, but then Carry On Cowboy did it, so I suppose... So, yeah, I think it's that. I think it's tied into that kind of... Doctor Who's a very serious thing and we must not have any silliness or, you know, singing or anything like that. It's it's absolutely bonkers that people think like that because it's a very, very silly show. And it's the silliest show there is <laughs> when it wants to be. Yeah. And within the context of this story, I do think it works. Like... It's a fun, stupid cowboy thing that isn't particularly pulled off very well. So it's just Mm. a wink to the camera, like you say, for everybody. Well, there's also this kind of like Wild West verse of the Greek chorus as well, isn't it? Because each verse of the song relates to what's kind of happening in the 
story. So it's it's a fun idea, you know. And I think if you're either on, it's one of those things where you're either on board with it or you're just shooting out. I think. And are you on board? I kind of am. I quite like the gunfighters. Me too. I once interviewed a, a filmmaker who directed a documentary about Wyatt Earp. Um, and we got talking about there's a Star Trek episode where Wyatt Earp shows up, and I can't remember how Doctor Who came into the conversation because I definitely, I definitely didn't bring it up. I think it was maybe the other guy as part of the conversation, but we got talking about the gunfighters, and he was sort of talking about how he couldn't get hold of it, I uh, couldn't get hold of the rights to sort of include it in the film or something like that, which was quite interesting. Yeah. I don't know what, yeah, I don't know what <laughs> they were charging, charging him to use it, but yeah. But is the gunfighters the definitive representation of? Uh, it is, yeah. yeah. Weirdly, <laughs> I mean, also I guess it wouldn't kind of fit in with his thesis, which is about kind of how Wyatt Earp is the kind of the sort of genesis myth of America and American cinema and, and, and stuff like that. A ropey old British television show from the 1960s <laughs> doesn't quite fit into that. I mean. So that to me is, is um, the Hartnell era done and dusted. And I mean, basically, I, I couldn't find any evidence of Carol Ann Ford ever having a singing career. No. Same with William Russell or Jacqueline Hill. So, I mean, who knows? But don't worry, because Patrick Troughton probably never sang anything. He hated doing theatre, so <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine him wailing something out on stage. But Fraser Hines was there, and Fraser Hines loves a gimmick. So Fraser Hines hit us with Who's Doctor Who? He has a time machine To travel through ages To take a look at history He simply turns the pages When kings are to a penny He never thinks of money No, although he hasn't any They all say who Is Doctor Who Which is a, a, a convention classic Yeah <laughs> In the 90s I remember that being played quite a lot Oh, okay, played well, I, I thought Fraser would just show up at conventions and I mean, quite possibly that But yeah uh... <laughs> I found the first part of this almost unlistenable. Mm. But by the time the kind of second half of the first verse kicks in and the chorus, I was quite enjoying it. How do you feel about it? It's quite... In a way, it's kind. It's not that far removed from the Roberta Tovey. Yeah. There's, I, it's just, I guess, maybe a step up in production value. But it's kind of, again, it's like telling that story. But yeah, there's that kind of weird... I wouldn't say overly produced. Probably the vocals are underproduced. Yeah. And there's just this kind of incredible like distortion, which I guess is this kind of sci-fi vibe they're going for, that kind of drowns out the first the first half of the song. Yeah. But it, that's fine, as novelty records go, because that's what it is, fundamentally. Do you know who's playing the guitar? Uh, is it Johnny? No, it's not Johnny Marr. That's ridiculous. No, I don't know. It's Jimmy Page. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> it is. That's what Discog says. It says Jimmy Page is oh, playing yeah. the guitar on that. And it was produced by someone called Tommy Scotts, who has a lot of Scottish-themed albums, bagpipes, orchestras, big bands, and things like that. So, you know, the, the, the people behind it have got some, some sort of credence. But I love the fact that a jobbing Jimmy Page in the, in the 60s was like, That's amazing. i got to do Fraser Hines, uh, Fraser Hines' single about being Doctor Who. We might find them as we go on through this, but um, I'm just thinking that that's a hell of a pub quiz question. What links Jimmy Page... <laughs> And Zimmer. They've all worked on ropey Doctor Who-related <laughs> bits of music. 
<laughs> it's true. It's true. Now, the novelty effort doesn't stop there. No. Because in the 70s, John Pertwee, in the, during his second, third year of Doctor Who, 1972, he has John Pertwee, who is the Doctor. Is there a more 70s song than this? <laughs> it's a bit prog concept album. <laughs> but with a, a little way. bit of disco in there. Yeah. Every time I hear it, and I've heard it more times probably than I care to have, I am always constantly kind of surprised, <laughs> surprised by it. Yeah. Oh my God, yeah, this came out during, like, while he was Doctor Who as well. It wasn't just like yeah. a kind of cat, because I guess it probably wouldn't have been licensed if, you know, cashing in on it. But yeah, and it's, I crossed the void. Beyond the Mind. remember the words, Beyond the Mind, that's the one, yeah. And it gets proper psychedelic. Yeah, I mean, I bet, I bet Pert, we liked a bit of LSD. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. It's the first one to obviously utilise the theme tune, mm. albeit in a slightly proggy, disco-y way. And it was arranged and produced by a man called Rupert Hine, who went on to have a moderately successful career in new wave music in the 80s. He's got seven albums under his belt. Scans. I can, I can see the trajectory from this to new wave. I checked out a couple of his songs. One of them was terrible, and one of them was like, I would listen to more of this. I like a bit of new wave. Okay. But, I mean, it goes for 15 quid on Discogs well. for an original copy. Pertwee would do anything for a few quid, wouldn't he, so... He would. He definitely would. Are we going to talk about the other thing? (laughs) We are. I've just got one more minor, minor fact here. It was mixed by a guy called Porky, a.k.a. Graham Peckham, who was a mastering engineer who (laughs) worked on the the catalogues of the Beatles, Genesis, Led Zeppelin, and of course this. Yeah, it's probably a minor entry on his his CV. But But the biggest for Doctor Who fans. (laughs) Yes. What, you worked on albums by uh, Doctor Who's very own The Beatles from The Chase? <laughs> exactly. I mean, that's what really kicked off their careers, wasn't it? Before that, they were just a, a pub band from oh, Liverpool. Yeah. Nobody ever heard of them. <laughs> There's another John Pertwee album, which technically is older than Doctor Who itself because it came from it 1962, called John Pertwee Sings Songs for Vulgar Boatmen. There was a buxom country maid who lived in Abercarn Who liked the simple country life she led upon her farm And though she loved the farm, she had a hankering for bows And she liked to reap the wild wind, so she liked to sow her oats Away did you make it through this album in its entirety? I did. That's very impressive. And I fancied a wash afterwards, <laughs> to be honest. I, mess- I, t- I messaged this to you earlier. I was listening to it in quite a sort of trendy, well, as trendy as Darlington gets, uh, quite a trendy coffee shop while I was doing some work. So I just kind of opened up the YouTube link and just had it kind of playing in the background. And there was that kind of mortifying moment of, what if my headphones just run out of battery and it just starts playing out of the onboard speakers <laughs> because it's not the sort of thing you want to be caught listening to in this day and age it's absolutely not it's basically as the title says about a bunch of dirty mm. old sailors having their wicked way with uh, various women in various ports and the women themselves yeah. do not come off fantastically there's a buxom country maid who gives sailors pleasures for uh, that's well worth half a crown for instance <laughs> 
there's prostitution and obviously being the Doctor Who podcast that covers Doctor Who prostitutes, <laughs> we had to cover this. I mean, I get it's of its time, but it's mm. it's awfully kind of ill-judged. Yeah, I mean, it feels, I mean, I guess early 60s, isn't it? But it still feels like it was almost too dated even for 1962. Yeah. Because I guess it is, because I guess it's all old sea shanties and stuff like that. No. Or is it new? Oh. <laughs> no, this was all written by George Evans, who wrote The Navy Lark. Oh, was it? Yeah. Okay. And so he's obviously written this uh, this explicit album. But, you know, I, I like a lot of hip-hop music from the past that's, that's got some ropey sure. morals and things like yeah. that. Yes. So if it's good enough for Eminem, it's good enough for John Pertwee. That's what I, I've always said. But uh, they, they've done it for John because basically everybody thinks... Like, the, the the myth's always been, or the line's always been, John can do loads of voices, but he mm. can't. He can do about three, and one of them's Wurzel Gummidge, which he's been doing <laughs> since the 50s. Like, I was listening yeah. through, and I was like, that's from the that's the Welsh guy from The Green Death. That's Wurzel Gummidge. That's just John Pertwee. I, I will admit, I do like the way he kind of performs on this in terms of like stretching his vocals out he has this weird way of kind of going which uh i can't quite deliver i mean they just don't make them like this anymore do they and nor should they and i do feel like if the young the younger generation of that i mean it was bad enough with that zanussi uh corporate video <laughs> how do you get to the planet and i'm not sure. <laughs> So it turns out John Pertwee would have been cancelled. Yes. Yeah. There's another member of the Pertwee Ensemble who's got quite the musical career. A man called John Levine, best known for playing Sergeant Benton. I thought John Levine had a song called The Ballad of Sergeant Benton. But he doesn't. Oh, sure. He has no. an album called The Ballads of Sergeant Benton, which isn't on Spotify because John Levine wants your fucking money. But on YouTube, there is one song up, which is a cover of In My Life by The Beatles. There are places I'll remember All my life Though some have changed Some forever Not for better Some have gone And some remain All these places have their moments with lovers and friends I still can recall Some are dead and some are living Is this a definitive version of In My Life? <laughs> no! No, you're absolutely not. right. It's out of time. It's heavily auto-tuned. I've got to ask, do you think he cleared to use this song or any of the others? <laughs> I, I don't want to see anything that would get Mr Levine in trouble, but I, I'm not convinced. John Levine doesn't listen to podcasts, so he'll never know. He's also the man that, let's be honest, the minute the Salisbury poisonings happened, he was out there with his fucking video camera <laughs> filming a guide complete with James Bond music over the top of it. So... He's, you know, he's a shameless self-publicist. He is indeed, and God love him for it. <laughs> I've seen John Levine do a song at a convention, but only one. Mm. And um, he hasn't got the strongest voice. I'm sure he did, like like a lot of these people, when they were younger and they were in rep and, you know, things like that, they would have all had to be able to hit the basic tones uh, in order to sing some songs. But it's yeah. very hard to do when you're in your 70s and 80s, I guess. Yeah, because when, when was this brought out? Because obviously it's a, young, it's a much younger photo of him on the cover of it. 
to make it look like I guess a seventies release or something. Well, maybe no. not quite seventies, but but that no, that's what, how it kind of looks as on the cover. But obviously, it's not because it was much later. It's it's the noughties. right? Okay. I mean, there's some of the other tracks on the album include uh, "Lady in Red." which I would like to hear, but I didn't want to... I'm sorry, John, I just didn't want to spend any money on your album, just just, just, just for the sake of this. Wind Beneath My Wings and Cats in the Cradle. There's also a video of John Levine performing at a convention <laughs> online, which I shared to you. All these things will be in the show notes as well. So how would you describe that video? Oh, God. I mean, how can you describe that video? It's essentially... Were they in a church hall or something? I feel there's a big stained glass window behind them or something. Yeah. It feels very grand, like they're in the Union Chapel in London or something. But they're not. And, but they're not. And, and John Levine is, is serenading a, a, a woman dressed as the Tooth Fairy, is it? From, from the Rise of the Guardians film, which was some big... I remember this vaguely from having worked in the cinema when it came out. But it was like an animated Avengers-style thing, but rather than superheroes, they were all like... It's Santa Claus teams up with the Easter Bunny teams yeah. up with, so it was somebody who clearly that film had had a big impact on, and decided to dress as the Tooth Fairy. And it's really good cosplay. It is. I mean, if you see the actual thing itself, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty impressive. John serenades them with a version of JJ Kale's Starbound. Had you ever heard that song before? I had to do a bit of googling to uh, to find out what there was. I'm aware of JJ Kill, but I'm not that familiar. It was also covered by Willie Nelson and Eric Clapton, uh, and again the definitive version by John Levine at a convention in a church <laughs> hall. You notice down the sides next to him, he's got two big John Levine banners, like he's the most important person in the world. Now, I don't want to sh- slag off John Levine. Actually, I do want to slag off John Levine. Um, <laughs> John Levine is great entertainment value, but nobody believes John Levine is quite as important in the history of Doctor Who as John Levine does. I think that's fair. You know? He, <laughs> yeah. He, one of the things I dislike about him is that ever since Nick Courtney died, he's tried to play down that Nick Courtney and John Pertwee were ever friends, and it was just him and it was just John Levine and John Pertwee, which I don't believe was true, having gone to 90s conventions and seen John Levine sat over the other side of the stage. <laughs> We leave the Pertwee era behind, and it's time for the man himself, Mr. Tom Baker, with a very, very minor appearance on a song, uh, which is Manson's Witness to Murder Part 2, which is a weird kind of operatic thing, with Tom doing Mm. like a little poem at the end, isn't it? Yes, yeah, because I think it's part of a larger concept album, isn't it? I mean, it's very Tom, you know, it's Mm. very sort of doomy, (laughs) morose, morbid uh, kind of poem. But yeah, that is his kind of one and only... I did you kind of think it's weird that people hadn't asked him to do stuff like that before? This was going to be my next question. It's like, you would think, especially in the 90s and early noughties, he's probably a bit past it now, But although he's got a studio at home, but you would, you would think that he would have done loads of things like that. Well, do you, do you remember, I don't know if you were going to bring this up, but do you remember the when he was the voice of the, and the text message service? Yes, I do, yeah. And people were basically texting the lyrics to, I think they did, Common People I do and this. How Soon Is Now. And then put it to like a karaoke version of each of those songs. I don't know where they are now, because they were great, but I don't know if you can get hold of them anymore. But. The only other time I've heard Tom Baker popping up on something was as a sample on a Birmingham rap group's album by a group called Michaelis Constant. And the opening 
of their album was just Tom Baker narrating a wildlife documentary. Wow. But uh, nobody's got that, unfortunately. <laughs> so that's Tom. Now, I'm cheating here slightly because there wasn't really anybody else from Tom's era that had a, a, a big career in music or any career in music. But there is, I think, giving his definitive performance in the Doctor Who universe as NIDA in mm. Genesis of the Daleks is Peter Miles, who's got a song with a bona fide superstar. Yeah. Now, that is Dusty Springfield. They grew up together. They were best mates, apparently, and she talks about in her autobiography. And so they've just done this little song together. Can't we be friends? Why should I care though she gave me the air? And why should I cry and sigh and wonder why? I thought I knew the signal to stop. What a flop. This is how the story ends. He's gonna turn me down and say, can't we be friends? He's gonna turn me down and say, can't we be, 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 can't we be friends? Now, I quite like this one. It's alright. It's quite a nice little... You know, one of those kind of little duets that was very much of, of its time, you know? Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's quite... It, it just feels like a little demo performance, like a little snapshot into their lives at that moment. Mm. Now, I'm not a Dusty Springfield fan by, you know, any measure, but it was just quite nice. And also, you just wouldn't expect those two to have a friendship. Not at all. Were you aware that Peter Miles used to be a bit of a singer and a jazz musician? There's something at the back of my head that suggests that was a thing, but I can't say that I definitely knew that. So... I went to Peter Miles' house once, which this isn't one of those stories, don't worry. It was when I was writing the downtime book and I went to interview him and he came and picked me up from the train station in his car, in his battered out car, and he'd got posters for his next gig, like on all the all the windows sticking out from the inside. So you just couldn't, like, he, there's no way that, that car was roadworthy in, in, in that shape. And then I got in and like the door... As long as he can see his wing mirrors, right? Yeah, I don't know whether he could. But (laughs) I I got in and he... And the door nearly fell off of the car. And he was like, oh, it's never done that before. I was like, I don't think I broke it. But I went to his house and did the interview. And it was this real, like, snapshot into time because it had pictures and posters from all the gigs he'd played. And there were numerous. Like, it wasn't Mm. just, like, one or two. Like, he'd got a bit of a career. Probably only as a local kind of in, like, the area that he lived in and I think a bit in Brighton but he was just he used to play with a big band essentially you can totally imagine one of the reasons he got gigs was has appeared with Dusty Springfield (laughs) once oh great yeah get him in yeah on a demo that never came out until after (laughs) both of their deaths but uh, bless Peter Miles but he does beef out the, uh, the Tom Baker era quite considerably with that so moving into Peter Davison's era now Peter Davison, I didn't realise this. I knew he'd written the Button Moon theme tune, as everybody knows. But he also sure. wrote a song called Officer McKirk, which mm-hmm. I sent you a link of of him performing at a convention. Yes, yeah. How did you feel about the 10-minute rendition of uh, him doing the dodgy American <laughs> accent? Well, I mean, you say it's a 10-minute rendition. It, it, it's about five minutes <laughs> of somebody trying to clip the words to his neck via a little brace yeah. thing. And him sort of telling anecdotes about the Dave Clark Five, who yeah. originally performed it. I mean, Davison is pretty self-effacing, yeah. which I think kind of deflates any kind of, this is horseshit. Because he's kind of just like, yeah. look, I was a young guy in England. 
<laughs> trying to write a, essentially a country song about yeah. a country I know nothing about, <laughs> you know, and a music style of which I'm not really familiar, having sort of being from the UK. Um, so it's one of those kind of just like kind of kind of fun, slightly overlong, slightly uncomfortable convention performances, really. <laughs> But what I didn't realise is he actually wrote that for the Dave Clark Five mm. under Peter Moffat, which is his real name. Yes. Um, he also wrote a song with his then wife, Sandra Dickinson, called Let the Love Get In, which he Ooh. doesn't perform on, but he co-wrote it with her, and that's a seven-inch single. Uh, it's not worth checking out, guys. Just, okay. Just, 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 just don't bother. What I liked about this clip from Dixie Trek is it reminded me of this weird thing that happened, and I guess it still happens, but especially in the 90s, where you'd have like a Star Trek convention, but they didn't have enough Star Trek guests, so they'd throw in some Doctor Who people because they were probably cheaper, <laughs> or vice versa. Yes, because it's all the same, isn't it? Yeah, it's basically the same shit. Uh, I, I always loved it when you'd show up to a convention in the 90s and there'd be one guy dressed as a Captain Kirk outfit, and it's like, come on, mate, read the room. <laughs> Lucky you don't get beat up. Uh, I'm not advocating violence towards Trekkies. <laughs> then, Colin Baker's era. Oh. Doctor in distress. Now. Oh, you he got spare 40 minutes. <laughs> he was in distress. He was. There's an extended version to this. I didn't listen to that. I thought it'd be Jesus. too much. Now, the biggest flaw with Doctor in Distress <laughs> is that it was a, it was a quick knee-jerk reaction to Doctor Who being cancelled. The problem mm -hmm. is, about a day after Doctor Who was cancelled, they then said, oh, no, it's just an 18-month hiatus. So this call-to-action charity record becomes even more ridiculous. <laughs> yes. Which it, with the fact that it's, it's just 18 months is too long to wait. And now we wait that all the time. Yeah, yeah, most television shows. Levine himself has kind of basically turned against it in the in the past, hasn't he? Told The Guardian it was an absolute balls-up fiasco. It was pathetic and bad and stupid. It tried to tell the Doctor Who history as an awful high-energy song. It almost ruined me. That's the thing that almost ruined him. <laughs> no, that was the first thing that almost oh, right. ruined him. <laughs> yeah. And he's been slowly ruining himself for the last 40 years. I have to admit something... I quite like this song. It's <laughs> it's awful. It, it is. It is awful. It is. But there's just something... I, I don't... I, do you know what? There's something quintessentially Doctor Who about it. <laughs> in the sense that... <laughs> just the lineup: Faith Brown, the yeah. comedian. Jonah Louie was on it. Bobby G from Bucks Fizz. Yeah. Like David Van Day from Dollar. It's like you put that up against like Live Aids. <laughs> and like that's Doctor Who taking yeah. on like pretty much any other sci-fi, like big sci-fi yeah. show, essentially. And and it's it's Doctor Who just getting popular culture slightly wrong. 
which yeah, is which, what yeah. it's really good at. Yeah, absolutely. You know when we came on your podcast and talked about Doctor Mysterio and about how, yeah. of course, at the big superhero hype, you do Christopher Reeve Superman because Doctor Who can never quite... This is exactly what this is. Yeah. With a couple of members of the Moody Blues who obviously really <laughs> needed the work and Warren Can from Ultravox. Because Midge was busy with their life. <laughs> I mean, I think what what's also safe to say is from the one line that Nicola Bryant delivers, I'm glad that we never had to endure <laughs> a pop single by her as a solo artist. Yes. I mean, the lyrics, though. There's something wonderful about the fact that Doctor Who can birth a, a pop song that has the lines, Inside each of their casings was a bubbling lump of hate. <laughs> I mean, in other hands, that's a, it's not that far off a Nick Cave song, to be honest. <laughs> I mean, maybe you've just got to be thankful that they invented Twitter so people didn't have to do this stuff anymore. <laughs> yeah. Or like online petitions and stuff. Yeah, exactly. 26 signatures to reinstate the animations. <laughs> Is that a thing? Yeah, probably. Oh, I imagine oh, yeah. so. Meanwhile, somebody's trying to fucking deep fake William Hartnell from Beyond the Grave. <laughs> It's only a matter of time. Now what they're doing yeah. with Star Wars, we can, we're going to get a, mm, a deep fake yeah. Hartnell that done on a BBC budget. So we'll be even deader behind the eyes <laughs> than Mark Hamill. <laughs> now we mentioned this a little bit earlier. Hans Zimmer was obviously the composer on this. Well, he wasn't. He wasn't the composer, was he? He was, the, he was on the key. He was on keys. Oh, I, I, st- my, I stand I think, corrected. I feel like that. Yeah, because I mean, come on, surely not. <laughs> I think he was just a jobbing keyboard player who is now, you know, the go-to composer for any well any blockbuster because he no. did um, he's done Spider-Man movies. He's he's obviously works a lot with Denny Villeneuve on like the Blade Runner sequel, the Dune films, yeah. um, which are again isn't that, isn't that the quintessential magic of Doctor <laughs> Who? <laughs> the, the guy that played keyboards on yeah. the Doctor Who charity single is now composing scores for the Oscar-nominated Dune. <laughs> yes, of course. And I hope he remembers it. Yeah, the, the, there is a DVD extra, isn't there, on the yeah. Trailer of a Time Lord box set, which I guess is now on the Blu-rays as well. I've not revisited it, but um, the talks about it and Colin Baker's just like, yeah, I shouldn't have agreed to it. It's Because, yeah. you know, why did I sign up to, to release a pop single that asked for my job back? <laughs> that, that's pretty much it for Colin Baker's tenure. Now... The Sylvester McCoy era gets a bit tenuous here, so I'm, I'm not really going to go into any specifics, sure. but what I want to talk a little bit about is I love hip-hop music. I love all sorts of hip-hop music from like West Coast gangster rap to like more obscure trip-hoppy things and stuff like that, mm-hmm. and by, so, by the time Sylvester McCoy was the Doctor, hip-hop had landed, and Doctor Who embraced this, obviously, in The Greatest Show in the Galaxy. In true Doctor Who style. Yeah. And then on Take Heart, there's a little clip of McCoy rapping in the Pied Piper. Is he rapping or is he just, you know, spitting rhymes? (laughs) 
I feel like I mean it's more kind of Ian Jury, isn't it? But mm, it's yeah, definitely yeah, got yeah. that. It's that I don't know. It just feels quite punky, and the way that mm. like done in the most theatrical style possible. But I just felt like. I, I was just very surprised to see Sylvester McCoy doing something like that. But then also, he's absolutely the Doctor who would uh, kind of be, oh, yeah. be an Ian Jury-style hip-hop yeah. type thing. Well, he's got that kind of, not so much punk, I guess, but that, certainly that kind of, like, anarchist background. Yeah. You know, in the Ken Campbell Roadshow, which he also sang for, that My Brother Sylvester song that he used to... Yes, of course. He used to sing on the on the Ken Campbell Roadshow before putting a nail up his nose or tying his trousers or whatever it was. So yeah, it's quite in keeping with his because that was before he was the Doctor, right? Or it was just as he'd. It was it was either before or like in between the seasons or something. I think. Yeah. Do you know what? I've got a feeling he may even have done it and then gone back to it after his first. Like it was season. a revival. Yeah, yeah, I think that that might be because I feel like John Nathan Turner went to see him. In the Pied Piper, yeah. and he was like, "Okay, yeah, he's, he'd be good as Doctor Who." But yeah. it was quite a well, yeah, well liked production. Which, yeah, you're probably right. You probably went back to it. Another little thing from this era is, I think the only fictional entry into this, in that it's the only time a character from Doctor Who, and in, and this is right up this podcast street, a character from a spin-off, i.e., the comics, has released their own record. Oh, yeah. Do you know? I, I was like, what the hell is he talking about? I was like, oh, right, yeah, no, sorry, I did, yeah. <laughs> uh, in the form of Absent Dak, Dalek Killer. <laughs> These ten freaks are dumber than I Again, has a lovely hip hop feel to it. I'm grasping straws here, guys. I know where I am, but you know, I'm, tr- I'm trying to bring this back, back to a world I can relate to. It was a single by Absent Dak. It was a flexi disc that came free on the cover of Doctor Who magazine issue 167 in November 1990. How would you describe this God. absolute banger? It's yeah, it's weird, isn't it? It's kind of like. I mean, what genre? I mean, it's not hip hop. It, so, do you know what it is? The reason I say it's hip hop is because it deals heavily in samples. It's got sure. kind of, like it's 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 a it's it's kind of a tempo, a hip hop beat mm-hmm. in that respect. Obviously, he's not rapping. It's just somebody like it's some Daleks going. We are the Daleks. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's actually yeah. I don't thought about the sampling and stuff like that, but yeah, because I mean, it is it, it does kind of <laughs> like fall between, I guess, then hip-hop and the novelty records of the 1960s in this kind of weird mishmash that doesn't quite work yeah it samples peaches by the stranglers yeah and it was done by andy grant who used to do direct some of the early myth makers and dominic glynn who should know better yes he should god so my tenuous hip-hop links there why do you think doctor who's never successfully done a kind of hip-hop thing I mean, have you looked at the history of uh, Doctor Who? <laughs> <laughs> but even in the news, which series... is not to, which is not to say that obviously that hip hop can't come from uh, a, a sort of British background. But yeah, it's I think it's that that certainly that image of Doctor Who as this kind of 
establishment figure, even though actually they're not. I mean, even like fundamentally, I think the character of the Doctor is almost this, you know, he's an aristocrat. He's a colonial Mm -hmm. kid almost that runs away. He rejects that or she rejects that. Yeah. But also I think the people behind Doctor Who, this is changing a lot now and for the better, but it's still very much been like you went to film school, you went to stage school. And, you know, you have to have a lot of money to, to, to kind of do those things. And a lot of the time, those were kind of quite affluent white families. Um, mm. So I do think there's a little bit of, you, you know, it, as society progresses and media progresses and we try to become more inclusive and more diverse, I do think that's changing. But, you know, certainly a rap written by Stephen Wyatt in 1989 is never going to be cutting edge. No, and I think even with the new series, I think it still has that, although they've made strides towards being more diverse you know I, I think as we both know um working at sort of different sides of the industry mm. it's still not as diverse as it should be yeah of course um, in a lot of ways and it's not just doctor who now as we get towards new doctor who we're getting mm-hmm. dangerously into a zone where we might possibly like some of these songs <laughs> at least that's how i feel sure yeah but you know we'll see how you feel about that <laughs> but before that we've got paul mcgann now, I can only apologise because I sent you a link to listen to that was one of the McGann brothers, but the wrong one. In fact, I sent you a couple, but... Yeah, sure. There we go. But the McGanns, all four of them, so they had a, a minor skirmish in 1983 called Shame About the Boy and the Red Lights. They all do backing vocals on each other's songs and they do a couple together, but the Red Lights is a Paul McGann solo track. I don't, did you listen to that today or not? Did you get a chance? I did. Although the, all I can remember is Shame About the Boy. Which is a catchy it's tune. It's very catchy. It is know. very catchy. But The Red Lights, I think, is a murkier, more urban. In fact, it's 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 a reggae song, isn't it? Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. Yeah. And manages not to do anything too kind of risque with a reggae song. like But... You could the moment I heard Paul. I this was, was like, the review before, either. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's true. That that's true. I actually quite enjoyed Paul McGann's "The Red Lights," but uh, I feel if "Shame About the Boy" is more your thing, what can I say? Maybe Mark McGann's just a better singer. Maybe, maybe that's what it is. Yeah, I don't know. I just found it quite catchy, and maybe that's all all it took. And Paul's on there doing the backing vocals, so it counts. He is guys. on there. It yeah. counts. I was at the convention that Paul McGann made his debut which I think was like 98, 99, something like that, maybe Mm -hmm. even 2000. And he was a bit dubious about doing conventions. And one of the first things they did was play this song to a room of about a 1,000 people. Fortunately, Paul McGann was very good-humoured, but that could literally have been the last we ever saw of Paul McGann and Doctor Who fandom. There's that thing, isn't there? And I think it's not exclusive to Doctor Who fandom, of just 
misjudging the tone. <laughs> so what? I I just don't know what they're thinking of. It's like right, it's, it's Paul's first convention. What should we do to make him feel comfortable? I'll play one of his uh, one of his hits from the nineteen eighties <laughs> from that band that nobody really remembers. Yeah, that'll do it. I'll show we're on his side. Yeah, <laughs> it shows we know everything about him. Yeah, but they didn't stop there. Those guys had another album that came out in nineteen ninety eight. That's after the TV movie. Blame me. He recorded that before he recorded Big Finish. <laughs> so he thought that this was better than doing a Doctor Who script on audio, and doing a really bad covers album. And it is bad for what the stuff that is I've it? heard. Yeah, oh God. pretty fucking bad. But, you know, who knows? Maybe we can coax them out of retirement once more. Get, yes. Get get them back together. Now, for the Eccleston era, we've got to cheat a little bit. But we're getting very much mm. into our era of music. Let, we, are, we are. Let's talk about Billy Piper. Let's. Why not? I, sorry, I said that slightly too <laughs> excitedly. Can you remember Billy Piper first bursting onto the pop scene in the late 90s? <laughs> I can, um, and I'll tell you for why. So my, for some reason, so I, I mean, it wasn't just exclusive to our school, but I believe Billy Piper toured primary schools around the UK. Brilliant. I think when Be- Because We Want To mm-hmm. came out. And I'd left the primary school at this point, but my sister was still there. And I remember her just telling me that, you know, oh yeah, Billy Piper came to our school to perform. And I was just like, who the fuck's Billy Piper? Yeah. <laughs> Little did you know, Mark. Little, Little did, did I you know. know. If only. If only. I remember this coming out, and so I sent you two links to two Billy Piper songs, mm, which yeah, was yeah. Because We Want To and yes. Day and Night. I remember it coming out and being like, fucking terrible pop music. But looking back now, I don't mind a bit of pop music, especially from that no. era. So so I feel strangely nostal- nostalgic about it. And you know, Because I Want To is literally like the most blandest anti-establishment song you've ever got in your life. It's, yeah. yeah. It's, which again, I guess, very Doctor Who. Yeah. But- <laughs> And she does a little rap at the end. I'm still bringing it yeah. back to hip hop. There's a rhino in it as well, isn't there? Is there There's uh, a rhino bouncer. Oh, is, is, that, the, is it that video that's got the rhino or bouncer? Or is that day and night? I can't remember. Oh, it might be day and night, yeah. But anyway, there is there is a rhino somewhere. Day and night sounds a lot like it's ripping off the beat from Backstreet's Back. But the thing that got me the most about <laughs> these songs was both of the videos have better production values than Doctor Who when it came back. <laughs> As somebody who's recently watched the Eccleston era, um, I agree. Yeah. <laughs> because I think they were both shot on film as well, which the Eccleston era wasn't. Yes, that's true. Although, uh, what was I think what's interesting is that... Because how many years apart? Because we want to... And Day and Night. Uh, so, Day and Night is 2000, because I want to is 98, and then Doctor right, Who is okay. 2005. Because Day and Night feels very Britney Spears. Yes. Like they've kind of gone, we need, we need to kind of sex Billy up a bit. You know, yeah, and make her a bit more palatable to a slightly older audience, yeah, of kind of pop fans and pervy old men, <laughs> uh, <laughs> with the pervy old men ultimately winning out and getting her in Doctor Who. Yes, I was pleasantly surprised to go back to them and go, what a what a fun time from my childhood that I was obviously, I'm, yeah. I, you know, I'm into emo music or hip hop or whatever, and I, I couldn't possibly like like a pop song, but now I'm just like, what? That's that's fun. Once we get into the tenant era, though, we've got all sorts of... Uh, it's all kicking off. All sorts of drama school people making music. <laughs> now, the first time I ever saw David Tennant sing 
Mm. It wasn't so much him. He was actually miming. Did you ever see Blackpool? Yes. And yes, he walks into that miming to the boy with a thorn in his side. He does. By Morrissey. And I thought, this guy, this guy's going to be Doctor Who. Or you've probably been Doctor Who by that point. Anyway, my two favourite things, it was Doctor Who and it was Morrissey. You know, it was 2005 yeah. or whatever. And David Morrissey. No. <laughs> <laughs> There's something about David Tennant that he can pretty much get away with anything, I think. I... Well, yeah. maybe not murder. Not Actually, murder. maybe. 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 Who knows? <laughs> you know, like, just in the eye of Doctor Who, not just Doctor Who fans, but the general public, he's mm. sort of untouchable because he's such a nice guy. And I don't think it comes across as fake. No, no, I don't. It, yeah, I think it definitely comes across genuine. So when you see him on a programme called Bring the Noise with Tiny Temper and Catherine Ryan singing <laughs> West End Girls. West End town. In the West End town, the dead end world. The East End boys and West End You kind of go, and David Tennant is taking it seriously. You kind of go, if they do a biopic about uh, the Pet Shop Boys, they should cast David Tennant. Yeah. He, <laughs> he, he shows up on... He does commit to that song. He does. Like, yeah. Yeah. On a show that, that definitely feels... I mean, I didn't watch the actual thing itself. I've only ever seen that clip. But I presume it was a kind of light entertainment thing. Yeah. But he does commit to it on a level that is maybe above Ab- above what is what's required for him. Yeah. <laughs> maybe he's just a big pet shop boys fan. I, well, I think well he is. That's why he's called David Tennant. Oh yes, of course, yeah. So you know, David Tennant got me into the House Martins, which is not a sentence I ever thought I'd say. But and it was precisely because because you know the House Martins essentially they're yeah. like they're, they're like a knockoff Smiths, aren't they? But. Um, <laughs> Kind of. You know what? Slightly more, slightly more progressive politics. Yeah, nowadays, yes, so. yeah, of course. You know, on the Series 3 box set, and again, this is all while I'm a student, getting into indie 80s music, all this stuff, it shows the speech he does in Human Nature that you fast forward through, and it's like, never eat pears or or whatever it is. Yeah. Sure. And it shows what he actually says, and part of it is just him talking about how great the House Martins are, and I was like, I wonder who the House Martins are. I'll check them out. That's great. So, He's got, I mean, David, I, you know, David Tennant's got not bad tastes yeah. in music. He fucking loves the Proclaimers, but we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, <laughs> so he's done quite a few kind of charity type things, Children in mm. Need. He did a cover of Sunshine on the Leith. Is it Leith? Leith? How do I say Sun- it? Oh, God almighty. I'm, gl- I'm glad I'm here. Yes. Sunshine on Leith. <laughs> that, that's why I got you in, because I don't do the Scottish <laughs> stuff. And we go together with him and Catherine Tate. Mm. That sort of music does not do anything for me. Sure. How about sure. you? So I quite like The Proclaimers. Sunshine on Leith is a song I do quite like. Probably, I mean, this is a reference that nobody's going to get outside of Edinburgh, but more so for somebody who grew up in Gorgie than is probably healthy. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, it's it's a guy who is a fan of the Proclaimers singing Sunshine on Leith, as he probably would do down the pub. And there's nothing wrong with that, because it's a charity album. I played it to Amy when we were in the car a couple of days ago, and she was like, he's not very good, is he? <laughs> I was like, oh, well, it was like a charity, it was like a charity album. And she goes, oh, that's all right then, because, like, you know, I thought he was like... I thought he'd like released a covers album or something and he was <laughs> expecting people to take him seriously. And I was like, no, it's, it's fine. Obviously, the ultimate song that David Tennant was a part of 
is uh, the yes. ballad of of Russell and Julie. Yeah. Now, I mean... The, the smoking gun. The smoking gun. <laughs> I've always loved that. I thought it was a great little fun end to their era. Weirdly, I didn't know it was a Victoria Wood parody until about two weeks ago. Oh, right. Okay. So I'm the only person that didn't know that. I just thought they composed this song. But there is another, right. there is obviously John Barrowman on there as well. Uh, and it does, as you say, it's the smoking gun. They do talk about him getting his cock out. But let's forget about that. We're not here to talk about the John Barrowman situation. Enough has been said about that by people better versed than us to talk about it. Sure, so. sure. But that tune, I just like, it's only for Doctor Who fans, but it is fun as fuck. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because it was for the rap part, wasn't yeah. it? For the because they also did for David Tennant. There was like a five hundred miles yeah video as well. And I can't remember if they were singing or if they were just miming to the song. But there's like loads of different. They were just miming because I think five hundred miles had been re-released for like Children in Need or something. That so the proclaimers yeah, had yeah, popped yeah. a set and got like a few like seconds of it with David Tennant, and then everybody went right. We'll use that, and they just get the whole of the team to do it, which is. Which is great fun. And it, it to me, it really kind of shows kind of the camaraderie within that era of Doctor Who. And I'm not saying that's not there anymore. I have no insider information to say it's a complete yeah, shit show yeah. or anything like that. As lots of people try and say it is online, but they always have done. But then they've been saying that since this these videos came out, I think. Yeah. You know, for like yeah. the Moffat era and, you know, you know, Matt Smith and Stephen Moffat have fallen out because yeah. of this and... And who knows? Like, nobody ever had any fun on Doctor Who after Russell T. Davis and David yeah. Tennant left. That's why they all did it for five years. Well, certainly everybody kept it in the track. Well, I don't know if that's true either. <laughs> Actually, can't think of it. Uh, we hope they did. We hope so, yeah. Speaking of John Barrowman. Let's. Let's talk about John Barrowman's cover of Time After Time. Uh, which sure, Which was not? a special request from your girlfriend, I believe. It was. She apparently used to listen to... I mean, this is, you know, a horrendous thing, but... She apparently used to listen to that on her way to school. I don't know what year this came out. Because she's about eight eight years younger than me, so I'm 36. Um, she's 28. And we've been watching the Eccleston era out of her own nostalgia because she watched it as, at her grandmother's when she was like 10 years old. But yeah, she she quite likes the work of John Barrowman, as my friend Derek used to call him. Because <laughs> she, before she, you know, is in her current career as a sort of canine behaviourist, she was like really into musical theatre and wanted to, you know, pursue that as a career. So you can see how somebody gets into Barrowman through that. Um, yeah. Because that, he was Mr. Musical Theatre, which is why, and it was only recently I was writing something and I went, Christ, that's why Torchwood's never worked for me. Because everything around it is supposed to be this dark, gritty, adult sci-fi show. But you've got Mr. fucking Saturday Night. Yeah. In the middle of it, and it just doesn't work. <laughs> like, it's because he is a he is a big personality, mm-hmm. and you know, don't get me wrong. Like, I think he's a perfectly decent singer. I mean, you know, he's he wouldn't have. I mean, however many albums he's got, and it's a it's a not it's a fine it's a fine cover. And if you want to listen to it, I would suggest you go on YouTube because somebody's edited a video together of. Captain Jack and Yanto. Of course, they have to that. Except they haven't just used clips from Torchwood. They've used behind-the-scenes clips, convention clips, to make it look like, actually, they're, they're a real couple. People love to do that. I never knew about this until I watched the documentary about One Direction, and I realised that, that, that shipping is not just connected to fictional characters. Ah. Like, it can then spawn out into... Oh, no, like, Harry Styles is in love with whatever the other boy's called. Um, <laughs> all that kind of stuff. And so, yeah, I can totally imagine how Torchwood fans 
just like yeah John Barrowman and, and Gareth David Lloyd actually like really in love with each other as well because like, <laughs> I want my Jack and Yanto fantasy to last forever <laughs> it's why there's still a fucking shrine I know it's Cardiff insane there are, there are people that live in Cardiff who are just like this guy must have been really important around here he's <laughs> like, like yeah this guy, this I don't remember hat. seeing this in the news yeah. <laughs> how did he die and it's like he's a fictional character from Torchwood what the fuck's Torchwood it was Doctor Who spin off oh. Next, it's the 11th Doctor's era, and we've got Arthur Darvill. Yes. Now, Arthur Darvill, I didn't know this about him. I had no idea that he was a musician, but mm-hmm. he's in a band called Edmund. He's also done like musical theatre and things like that, and a smashing cover of Let It Go called The Ballad of Arthur Darvill on Radio 1. I sent a couple of clips to you. One was cover of Falling Slowly, mm-hmm. which is kind of... I was a little bit moved by that, I'm not going to lie. Yeah. Yeah, is is that that's from Once the Musical, isn't it? I think so. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I can, I you know, I can, I can see how people, because that is quite a popular show. I, yeah. I seem to remember from my my theatre days, and I can see why. I mean, if you've got, it's this sort of show where, like, if you've got the right cast, like Arthur Darvill, mm. singing those songs, then you are a bit moved. Yeah, I, <laughs> as all, you should be. It all gets a bit Mumford and Sons towards the end. Um, sure, but yeah. uh, like, I just think he's got quite a he's got quite a touching voice. I think. Mm. You know, I can see you going, mm, no, no, yeah, what's no, wrong no, with just, yeah, no, it's, I just can't get that fucking dreadful comedy song that he does on Radio 1 out of my head. Yeah, well, I mean, the less said about that, the better, to be honest. Yeah. Like, I just thought. I mean, let it go, let it go, I'm not Rory Williams anymore yeah. or whatever it is, it's fine. But Well, I wanted to throw that in there, not because I thought it was great, but I think it's important to balance these things out of what people are actually <laughs> capable of. Sure. I was going to say it was a bit of a throwback to convention cabarets yes <laughs> but on a mainstream yeah. radio station the ghost of gary downey doing a strip tease yeah. in the background so there was also one of his songs thoughts of flight from his band i thought that was quite a competent little indie number need surprise my hands feel like wise my fingers rust justify my thoughts of On the horizon, and make a bed for us to lie on. Caught in tumbles, my oh my, to my surprise, another canvas. Another slam. Yeah, they're, they're not bad. If I'd have heard that in a pub in Camden in 2006 I would have thought this is pretty good you wouldn't go much further than maybe listen to a few more tracks yeah. or like get the, the album and be like eh, this doesn't quite pan yeah. out no, as exactly. I would like it to but. but you took those risks like pre-downloads and pre-Spotify where you're just like well I've heard this one song I might buy the album and then it was an absolute yeah. load of dog shit and go to the charity shop with it we're nearly at the end of the new series before we get into the good stuff <laughs> I wonder if anybody's still listening to the the, the podcast version. Uh, we'll find out. So this is what started all of this. Peter fucking mm. Capaldi. He's got a lot Peter. to answer for. Yeah, he's had quite the career. He's been a director, a writer, an actor, and a musician. So what do you think of Capaldi, the musician? So I quite like him, but then I think because I like Cohen and Cave and all these people, I do quite like 
a kind of gravelly voiced old yeah. man telling me a story essentially to some haunting melodies but I think what's interesting and I don't think Capaldi's cited Nick Cave as an influence but there is an interesting parallel in the sense that both of them came from like a punk scene yeah Cave from the Australian punk scene and and Capaldi from sort of Glasgow art school punk to kind of this point in in their lives of these kind of slightly more mournful um songs mm-hmm. um but I I quite like the album i got to say obviously there's the dream boys who is it he was in before with craig ferguson mm. and there was a song made called shallow dance which you know will drop in the links or whatever yeah And I really like that sort of kind of lo-fi kind of... It's a bit like Bauhaus. It's a bit like early, early Cure. Mm. And I don't think Peter Capaldi is the greatest vocalist on it. But, like, I, I listen to music like that a fair amount and I can I can deal with the whole kind of lo-fi nature. But as you say, that album, it's a little bit more... It felt to me like, I'm going to call it... Musically, it's kind of mid-period Morrissey. So <laughs> it's... After his initial solo career, then he comes back in 2005, then he has a few albums towards the kind of 2008, 9, 10s era where he does some quite interesting stuff. Then his music gets shitter as his political opinions decline, which is, you know, a great out point for all us Morrissey fans. (laughs) The internal struggle isn't there of whether you could still like his music because it's just shit now. (laughs) But um, the, the, the thing that doesn't... I wish he was a bit more Tom Waits. I wish, like... Mm, okay. Because obviously he can't sing sing in a traditional sense which isn't a problem there's lots of people that have made careers out of that but i almost want his vocals to be less peter capaldi and more kind of gravelly and weird like i want him to commit a bit more i think it's a a fine out like i enjoyed it yeah 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 me too i um i I get what you mean it's that thing of i mean i think yeah if he did go weirder with it but then i think it's also is it is it just that thing of like if you want a peter capaldi album you still want to kind of hear him in there i don't know is is it kind of just kind of staying on that kind of that kind of safe side. There's there's that intro, isn't it, where he does some talking and it's it sounds mm. like one of the more obscure Moffat episodes and you could see <laughs> you could see Big yes. Finish butchering it after his death for something. Oh god, that is gonna happen, isn't it? Yeah, it's gonna, gonna just happen. oh we've got that whole album of Peter Capel stuff that we can just <laughs> chop out. And I've heard the engineers still got him talking in between the tracks, in between the studio. <laughs> so all we've got to do is Doctor Who in a recorded studio. It works sold. There's at least a short trip in there. Jodie Whittaker's era. Obviously, Jodie's done a cover version of Yellow by Coldplay. I know she loves them. It's all very performing arts, you know. Mm, yeah. I have no inclination to like Coldplay. No, neither do I. It's, it, it, it's interesting that, that Tennant kind of goes for the slightly karaoke version. Yeah. Yeah, Jodie Whittaker goes for the performing arts school audition of a yeah. song they quite like. And then Bradley Walsh is there. He's been singing forever like it's as if you know like did he want to make it even more difficult for us to tell him and brian conley apart <laughs> you know but B- bradley walsh has always been this age like there's not a young bradley <laughs> walsh like i feel like when my nans were alive he was on television singing and yeah sure and they would have loved this he's like the pg barrowman yeah <laughs> yeah because I, I feel there was a period where like yeah he was like mr light entertainment yeah Doing a lot of singing on telly. Then he was on Coronation Street for quite a big time, wasn't he? Yes. I seem to remember. 
so he kind of sh- that was when he kind of shifted into acting because yeah. they were trying to do that thing because they just got Shane Ritchie on EastEnders and they're like oh we need another cheeky Cockney character yeah um, to go up against him who cannot who is also a song and dance man <laughs> but yeah he has always he's not really aged I think his hair's got a bit thinner and that's yeah. it really but he's always been kind of he's kind of old school in kind of like a musical sort of way in that he does a bit of acting yeah. he does the funnies he does the singing he can do dancing mm-hmm like, but he comes from that variety background, yeah. though, doesn't he? Like yeah. Shane Ritchie, like Brian Connolly, like John Barrowman. Like, yeah. They've all come from those sort of variety things. Because like, I can't remember if he was a red coat or a blue coat or whatever. One of the coats. coats. Yeah, he was one of the coats. And that's kind of where he started. And I think it seems, you know, if you look at people like that, that it never quite leaves you. Yeah. You I mean, know? he used to do this. This is, I didn't think about this beforehand, but... Wasn't there like an Instagram thing where it was Bradders Sings or something during while he was on Doctor Who? Yeah, and it, it was. And it'd just be them in a car miming to a song, you know, like... Yeah, between, between sets or something yeah. like that, yeah. Anyway, so the last, <laughs> the, the last person we've got to talk about before we get into Doctor Who good and proper is Jacob Anderson from the most recent series of Doctor Who, Doctor Who Flux. Went by the name of Rowley Ritchie. This desperately surprised me. It's like a genuine. It desperately surprised me. <laughs> this really surprised me. Just because, I mean, and there's no reason why this guy shouldn't have a music career. It's the first one that's felt truly kind of relevant to the time that it's in. Yes. Do you know, like the yeah. the other stuff is like the novelty things. Like a '60s novelty record is a '60s novelties record. It's relevant in that respect. But this is the first one where it was a bit like. Maybe a bit of Arthur Darvel as well, but I feel like that's still a bit few, few years too late for indie. Um, it feels like like genuinely kind of modern music, and I really enjoyed like the the two tracks that I kind of listened to. He's done two whole albums, and I would, oh, has he? Right, okay. and this is actually stuff that me personally I would listen to. Hate me when I'm gone, I'll make it worth your while when I'm successful. But when I'm here, I need your kindness, cause the climb is always stressful. Clumsily gas myself by thinking I'll be better off alone. I'll leave my peace and pieces all around the decent people back at home. Cause I'm a big boy hitting idle now. Well, near. if I pull the ball back from my eyes, I can see clear. The world is at my feet and I am standing on the ceiling. It's a little bit like Sampha, and it does social commentary, slightly politically charged, it's accessible, and you know, it just felt, I just really, really enjoyed it. How did you feel about his music? Yeah, I mean, I I felt not as enamoured towards it as you, but I I was like pleasantly surprised, or desperately surprised, um, (laughs) by how much... I liked it. I think for the, for those exact reasons, because you know there's proper production values in the yeah. music videos. There is a, a very contemporary feel which you don't get in any of the other stuff that yeah. we've talked about. Really, I particularly liked was it time in a 
Tree? Yeah. Is that the one? Yeah. I will definitely check out his albums. I, I think I probably said desperately surprised because I've just been on a desperate quest with you to, uh, <laughs> to get through these things. So sort of bringing it full circle on this stuff. Are there any particular favourites out of all of these? Are you a big fan of John Pertwee's uh, Volga Boatman? Songs for Vol- Volga Boatman? I think, was it Jack's uh, Jack's plan or something like that? It's just, <laughs> I'm not going to repeat any of the lyrics. No, no. Yeah. Just, and if you're easily yeah. offended, do not look them up because you're do like, not. you don't want to not like John Pertwee. So. No, no, no. And it was, I like a lot of the stuff on the Capaldi album. Like the St. Christopher single, I like the kind of closing tracks quite nice. Um, and that opening track's really kind of yeah. dark and sort of a great sort of mid-setter. Um, like I say, Time in the Tree's very good. Yeah, those, those things. The, the tail ends, really. Yeah, I think once you get to the new series, you, we are like on the cusp of some things that are pretty good. And I think Capaldi, mm-hmm. Arthur Darville and Jacob Anderson are the ones for me. So, yeah. having been through all these, the history of Doctor Who artists performing... What have we learned from this endeavour? That just because you can doesn't mean you should. But that's exactly what I've got written. <laughs> no way, is it? Yeah, that's exact. I knew you. I knew that we were. <laughs> and I, I, that's brilliant. I, I think that's a perfect point to end that section of the podcast. Too hot for TV. So enough about music. Let's talk about some top quality Doctor Who. Now, originally, when we talked about doing this podcast, we were just going to do the music. And then I kind of said, maybe we should do a Doctor Who story just to kind of keep... I think quite quite rightly. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So there were only two choices, really. So there was Doctor Who and the Pirates, which is arguably like, of of those first sort of 50-odd big finishes, an absolute classic, right? Yeah, yeah, it's pretty good, yeah. And then the other kind of musical choice was Doctor Who The Ultimate Adventure. We're in for a ride here, I can feel it already. But let me give you some of the background to The Ultimate Adventure. Now, obviously, it was a stage show first. The Ultimate Adventure stage show ran from the 3rd of March 1989 until the 19th of August 1989, so right before the final season. It was written by Terence Dix. Initially, it starred John Pertwee, and at some point, John Pertwee... There's this rumour that he collapsed on stage. He didn't collapse on stage. At some point, early on, in a Birmingham performance, he turned around and said, I'm sorry, I can't go on tonight, and left the stage. And they restarted the play with David Banks, the cyber leader who was playing Carl in this, and understudying the Doctor. And he did a couple of performances. John Pertwee came back, did a few performances, and then ultimately, I think I think John Pertwee was just getting on, and perhaps theatre wasn't for him. Yeah. And so Colin Baker took over for the rest of the run, which, you know, is, is all fair enough. My dad, actually, was at one of the Birmingham ones that Pertwee actually did. I got into Doctor Who in 1989, and so literally about two months before, he was there <laughs> watching this absolute classic, not knowing the monster he was about to spawn. <laughs> So, news from the time. Doctor Who magazine opens with the headline, Dapol Sales Saw. I think that might be over-egging it a little bit. Sure. Because I never remember a time as a kid where you'd walk into Toys R Us and there'd just be a wall of Dapol <laughs> toys, like in the Tenant era. Supermarkets full of two-handed Davroses. But I don't know about you, were you ever a collector of the Dapol toys? I had a couple. But I feel like I never really went out of my way to get them. It was like that sort of thing that like you would be at a car boot sale. Yeah. Or like a school fate and somebody would just have like a Cyberman. Yeah. 
in a box somewhere. You'd be like, oh my god, a Cyberman! I'll have, I'll have that. I'll have a Dalek. Or, I don't think I ever went out of my way to buy them because I think they'd kind of. I don't know, I think you could still get them in Forbidden Planet and stuff like that, but they weren't as readily available, I think, when I was kind of really into Doctor Who. I mean, they ran all through the 90s, essentially, mm-hmm. in various guises. But I can tell you that in Birmingham, there were two shops that sold them, and none of them were committed toy shops. One of them yeah. was a model shop, and the other one was a place called Nostalgia and Comics, which sold comics, and Nostalgia um, mm-hmm. does what it sells. I think, that's probably the, I think that was pretty much the same in Edinburgh. There was like the Wonderland model shop yeah. and Forbidden Planet on uh, South Clark Street, I think used to... Oh, it's probably would have been Bread Street then. But yeah, it was literally just the same thing. Model, models and yeah. comic books. Dapol made toy trains, essentially, so I'm assuming mm. they just didn't have the connections in terms of sales with your Toys R Us's and your toy shops and things like that. And also, I guess, Doctor Who kind of stopped becoming a going concern. Yeah, well... You know, this was an age of, you know, the Ghostbusters and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and Star Wars and and all that merchandise. There's no way they would have been buying bloody Bonnie Langford (laughs) off you, would they? Little did they know. (laughs) Nevertheless, Dapol's sales were soaring, to the point that Dapol were planning a range of 12-inch Doctor Who dolls with Sylvester McCoy and two companions. Now, these obviously never got released, but I would love to see how bad they looked. (laughs) Other news at the time, season 26 was going to be 14 episodes again. Viewing figures for the latter half of season 25 were reported in DWM some three months after it had been finished. So bear that in mind, Doctor Who fans, these days when (laughs) they come out a couple hours late. And merchandise at the time, well, there was the Encyclopedia of the Worlds of Doctor Who. And then the Dragonfire and Delta and the Bannerman novelizations, so slim picking for merch. <laughs> Is it strange to do a stage show at a time when the show's profile was seemingly at an all-time low? Yeah, so I've always wondered about this, because um, I, I never saw it. Um, and I've only ever been... Because I kind of got properly into Doctor Who around sort of 92, 93. And obviously I'd heard of the Ultimate Adventure and all that kind of thing. And I've always wondered, and I don't think I've ever really got a definitive answer... Like, how popular it actually was. So, my understanding is that it did well enough to go through six months. It's not a huge run, and I believe it was supposed to run longer. Right. Truthfully, I think it probably started off on the nostalgia of John Pertwee being in the role and a bunch of adults who wanted to take their kids along to show them their doctor. Yeah. And then when Colin jumped on board, who, whatever you think of Colin, in the public's eyes was arguably the least successful doctor at the Mm -hmm. time. Perhaps it just became something that only Dwas members went to. Yeah, and I think that's probably the case. I mean, because it does seem odd as well that you wouldn't back and say Eccleston Tennant era. Yeah. There's absolutely no way that you would have had a touring stage production of Doctor Who with another actor playing the Doctor. No, not at all. So it does seem odd, sort of looking back on it. I think Ben Aronovich was originally kind of commissioned to write a script starring the Seventh Doctor, but I don't think that worked out because he had his commitments to the TV series and then he had other commitments in between, so it just wasn't going to work. But eventually this version by Terence Dix happened. Now, obviously, we didn't watch the stage show. We listened to the audio version, which became available in September 2008 from Big Finish Productions. 
It was recorded the 5th and 6th of June 2008 at the Moat Studios. Uh, at the time, writers for the Series 3 of Torchwood which would were confirmed. Uh, series 3 of the Sarah Jane Adventures had just wrapped. Big Finish announced they were doing the Key to Time Part 2, called the Key <sighs> 2 time see what they did there on dvd was trial of the time lord there were loads of bbc audios out that month so you had audiobooks of the auton invasion black orchid the new series novels the pirate loop the wishing well peacemaker and the soundtrack to the sensorites ever experienced any of them no i could only imagine that listening to the soundtrack of the sensorites makes it even more dull other big finishes at the time was the Boy That Time Forgot featuring the Fifth Doctor, Nyssa, and Andrew Sachs as a recast address. And then the Eighth Doctor and Lucy Miller, the Sisters of the Flame, and the Companion Chronicles, Here There Be Monsters. Have you listened to any of them? It's the first part of the Morbius mm. season finale, isn't it? Yeah. So I definitely listened to that. Um, I've never listened to The Boy That Time Forgot, but I, I've read about it. Yeah. And it sounds absolutely bananas. It is. And it's one of those things that I mean, at some point I'll cover it on the podcast with somebody, but it's the first big recast that they do at Big Finish. Yeah, I guess. And yeah. the only way they get around with it is by going, this is a really old Adric. Yeah, because I, I recently was writing about that idea of recasting, but I was kind of just literally focusing on dead people, but you're yeah. right, of course it was Andrew Sachs. And he just wasn't interested at the time. But obviously that's changed now, and Matthew Waterhouse is yeah. in every big finish there ever was. He's got to pay, he's got to pay for his jazz and wine night somehow. <laughs> Don't we all? And on television, they'd just finished broadcasting The Stolen Earth and Journey's End. Wow. So Doctor Who was at an all-time high. And then we've got this. Yeah. <laughs> Now, really? Yes. So, an all time Doctor Who has never been more successful and more popular at that moment. And they do this. How do you tie in with Doctor Who's ultimate adventure? When the Daleks and the Cybermen attempt to derail an Earth peace conference by kidnapping the American envoy, the Doctor and Jason give chase and acquire two new accomplices, a nightclub singer called Crystal and the furry creature Zog. The team pursue the Daleks through time and space, visiting Bar Galactica, Revolutionary France and navigating an asteroid field. When they finally confront the Emperor Dalek, the Doctor tricks the Emperor into revealing that the Daleks will betray the Cybermen, causing a battle between the two species. The Doctor and co return to London with the US Envoy, who is under Dalek control and attempts to blow out London, but the Doctor breaks the conditioning and disarms the bomb. So, uh, this was the first time you've heard this, I believe. <laughs> it was. I mean, immediately, I think there should be a disclaimer here where I am fully aware that the way to enjoy a stage show is absolutely not to enjoy it <laughs> through earphones, walking around a town centre, yeah, or just sat in your kitchen. I'm aware of that. <laughs> However, Big Finish have made it available that way, so that is how I've been able to enjoy it. Although I believe I was doing a bit of research this morning, and there's a transcript of the original stage show which is clearly taken from a bootleg video yeah. of it. So there must be one out there somewhere of the Pertwee. It's one of the Pertwee performances, I think. There, there is bootleg <clears throat> versions of the Pertwee and the Baker one, not right. of the David Banks one, unfortunately. Okay. Although I'm surprised Big Finish didn't record a version with David Banks, to be perfectly honest. Give them time. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so yes, so I'm aware this isn't, you know, it's ideal. And I'm aware also, of course, that... Well, actually, I don't know. 
<laughs> I was about to say I'm aware things have been rewritten because it's audio, but then actually, if you ever go and see Panto, there's loads of do- there's loads of dialogue that just describes exactly what's happening on stage. Yeah. So maybe you know maybe it's not quite as um, as that as possible as it is. It's quite a bizarre experience. Were you going to say that the transcript is different? There's some differences, yeah. Okay. There is some differences. Did you compare, or did someone else on the internet do that for you? Well, no, no, no. I kind of just... I, I haven't read through the whole transcript, because, Christ, no. you're not paying me for this. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not should you. I'm not should you. And if I was, there isn't enough money to make you sit through it again. <laughs> but I think, yeah, I, th- I think there was some some differences. I think, certainly, in the way the Bar Galactica scene plays out, yeah. I think it's quite different on stage, because, obviously, you see everything. Yeah. Whereas audio, you have to go, oh, is that madam, what's her name, you know, sitting over there? Yeah. Rather than the character introduce herself through song and then just be standing on stage when they turn up. I mean, where do you start with this? So, I do weirdly think this is kind of one of the things I expect from Big Finish, to kind of bring to life these things that have no business kind of being brought back to life in a weird way. Like, I think it's a really good way to kind of preserve those things. That doesn't make it enjoyable. <laughs> yeah, it's purely for research purposes. <laughs> um, so I was thinking, it, and it's so funny that you say that this this came out, because I, I was kind of aware it was 2008, but I couldn't in my head figure out where the tenant era was at that point. But it's so funny, it, it was sort of Journey's End, The Stolen Earth, you know, the height of Doctor Who's powers. You could have actually just done a full cast touring production of this yeah, with David Tennant, <laughs> John Barrowman mm. and Bonnie Langford, yeah. and it would have sold out. This is a weird mix of kind of panto, B-movie sci-fi, silly alien languages, terrible techno talk, cliche companions and lumbering monsters. And to me... This is what people think Doctor Who is like, especially classic Doctor Who. It's similar to The Curse of the Fatal Death, but there's no irony and there's no humour in in, in that respect. It is, to all intents and purposes, a car crash of kind of Doctor Who and sci-fi cliches for me. Absolutely. A car crash is a good... Because it's not quite a musical. It's not quite Doctor Who the musical. No. It's not quite a Doctor Who pantomime. And it's absolutely not like a big... You know, like, say, like, the Doctor Who prom? Yeah. Where you'll have, like, you know, actors in monster costumes come out, or you'll have Matt Smith and characters, the Doctor, jump up on stage and, like, play to the crowd. It's not that, either. It's not kind of trying to sort of capture the magic of Doctor Who, but in a different medium. It's literally just going, should we just do a Doctor Who story on stage and just see how that works? And and you feel like it would have been better committing to one of the... Like, Doctor Who the musical, give me that. Back to the Future, the musical, apparently really works at the moment. Sure, yeah. So, like, give me Doctor Who the musical. I remember also in the Matt Smith era, before the proms, there was Doctor Who Live. Do you remember that? Did you ever go see it? I went to see it, no, but only I, vaguely yeah, remember. remember. Yeah, yeah. what was that? It was an orchestra, but there was a plot to the entire thing, and there was lots of videos. Weirdly, Nick Briggs playing Churchill. He'll do anything. He'll do anything for a five of that guy. He's the 21st century John Pertwee. <laughs> for the love of stories. <laughs> it was essentially a Doctor Who story where the Doctor wasn't the main character, but appeared at various points, right. kind of like, almost like... A shitter version of... Do you remember that two-pack hologram that appeared at Coachella a few years ago? There's a few times where a Matt Smith character walked along the stage and it was kind of done with the same thing. And that was a lot more successful from the brief memories I have. 
than the ultimate adventure on audio. That's it. It is audio. Mm. But I... And actually, I I say this to somebody who likes Bonnie Langford, but come back, Bonnie Langford. (laughs) All is forgiven. (laughs) Because I think what makes this so weird is that it's very clearly written for John Pertwee. Yeah. And then they kind of just make a few amends for Colin coming in. They don't get rid of the sonic screwdriver, though. No, they don't. Or, my dear girl. Yeah. Or, like, my dear man. All this kind of stuff. But also... The companion is very much Bonnie Langford. Yes. In fact, I mean, both of the companions are very much Bonnie Langford, just split into a male and a female. But uh, we'll come to the companions in a little bit more detail in a moment, because I've got a bit of history on them. Okay, cool. But let's talk about... So, fundamentally, can you see it working on stage in terms of what you know about it, pictures you may have seen, and what happens in there? I can see it working on stage in the way a kind of ropey regional theatre panel works on stage. Yeah. It's it's hard it's hard to tell from audio but oh actually I say it is it's not really because you can tell you're supposed to be laughing. Yeah. But because you don't have a crowd with you. Yeah. Doing the the laughing for no you. Laughter. Yeah. yeah. I there's certain things like the smoke grenades and guillotines and things which are all quite kind of tried yeah. and tested kind of stage tricks that you know always work well i know that there was a lot of lasers because they were new back then and video screens involved which i think probably made it look quite spooky and you know we we fly through time and space a little bit you know we get uh revolutionary france for five minutes for no reason apart from the guillotine thing because we can do guillotines because the stage we get like a most icely cantina in Bar Galactica, and then we get Daleks and Cybermen and and things like that. But it's very much Doctor Who for kids. Yeah. And Terence Dix said that it was pitched at a younger audience. It was supposed to have the spirit of Doctor Who, but it should be a plot that was followed by kids easily, while the dialogue sustained enough jokes for older members of the audience. Arguably, for me, the only jokes... There's a few nods that Doctor Who fans go, ha ha ha, reverse the polarity of the whatever. Mm. And then... You know, the Maggie Thatcher stuff, which is just, I mean... Insufferable. Do we think Doctor Who should be mates with Maggie Thatcher? No. But then should he be mates with Vincent Churchill? Probably also not. Or Chairman Mao, as the third Doctor was. (laughs) This is, I mean, we are talking... There's this weird thing where Terence Dix, he seems slightly more liberal in terms of he talks about pollution and nuclear disarmament, Mm. which is quite Barry Letts. But then he's like, he's friends with Margaret Thatcher because we all know Dix is a Tory. I think it's also interesting. I mean, I know we'll come to the companions shortly, but uh, what what I found really interesting is the ending. Obviously, the companion, the female companion, is not the Doctor's companion to begin with. No, so he, he's, he's travelling with Jason, who's a, from Revolutionary France, and then they pick up Crystal, who yes. is a nightclub singer. So Crystal, obviously, at the end, uh, she's given a choice between life with the Doctor or pursuing her singing career is essentially what it comes down to. And there's a point at which you think that they're going to be all progressive and let her go off and become a career woman and, you know, be independent and, and all that kind of thing. But then, no, she just chooses just chooses life with the doctor and the guy that she's <laughs> fallen in love with over the past hour and a half. But also, she wasn't she wasn't that good enough of a singer, to, to be honest. No, no, she certainly was. So she made the right choice. God love her, they give her a lot of songs to sing. <laughs> While we're on the companion, so we've got Jason, who's played by Noel Sullivan here. Obviously, it was a different actor in the in the stage show, but we're just going to go off like what's here. Yeah, and he'd had a modest 
TV career appearing in, he was in years and years, Ross T. Davis has won, uh, Ordinary oh, okay. Lives, Gavin and Stacey, and has over 30 uh, presenter credits, including a long stint on Top of the Pops. While Claire Huckle played Crystal, only has a few TV credits, but mainly does stage work. And they're two human companions that barely have enough plot and lines between them <laughs> to make one. Did you see Noel Sullivan? Yeah. He was in Hearsay. Was he? That makes sense. Was he really? Yeah, Fucking I just... I was like, that hell. name really rings a bell. Why does that name ring a bell? Which I guess, because it has musical elements, I guess that makes sense. Were you Googling that, or did that just come to you because you're a big Hearsay fan? No, I did Google that. <laughs> <laughs> but then also it clearly came to me because I'm a big Hearsay fan, but not big enough to remember. <laughs> so these characters kind of bicker for no reason... And then after zero chemistry, because a song demands it, they fall in love, which kind of get, it makes the Leela and Andred love story almost believable. <laughs> Do you know a funny thing about that song? Um, when Dancing on Ice went on tour, mm-hmm. Bonnie Langford and John Barrowman performed it live um, night after are you serious? No, oh, I'm not. I wish that I, was. I, I wish that was true. I wish. But you know, as I was listening to it, I was just like, oh, that, <laughs> imagine how niche. I would, I would love it if that were true. <laughs> At one point, she turns to him and goes, you've taught me such a lot, which isn't even a proper sentence. <laughs> but also, what? Like, what have you learned from him? <laughs> what have you learned? Well, she learned about Winston Churchill, but she learned that from the doctor. <laughs> well, that's a weird bit as well. Who's that? Yeah. Did he, did he beat Adolf Hitler? <laughs> It's very off. Was there something you wanted to say about those guys? Yeah, I mean, obviously, because they just get all the singing bits, which I guess is why they get the hearsay guy. I mean, if you're going to get somebody to do a song on a Doctor Who, you want to get the best possible talent you can get, which is someone from hearsay. Yeah, and not even one you remember. Yeah. So did Dex write the lyrics for this? I mean, presumably he had a musical director. No, a musical director did that. He basically went, there'll be a song here, there'll be a song here. He kind of built them to that moment. And obviously they get that, what's it called? Like, Sky High? Sky high. Which yeah. I can only imagine because they walk into the TARDIS afterwards and go, We were flying. So on the stage show they must have been up on Kirby wires yeah. and yeah. you know, which I'm sure would have looked great and they would have had stars and they would have been sky high. It would have been incredibly romantic. I'm sure it would. The chemistry was just off 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 the charts. Off the charts. So villain wise we've got the Daleks, the Cybermen, and Carl, played by David Banks. What do we think of our villains here? I know Nick Briggs knows his Daleks. And obviously the Dalek voices in, the, in this audio, I would say, aren't his best work. But then I was thinking, is he is he trying to replicate like what the theatre Daleks were? No. Because the, the theatre Daleks are shitter than this. Like, I have heard okay. clips, like, if you go on YouTube, they are shitter. And then you get the Emperor Dalek who booms out. And I think this is part of the problem, is that this adaptation can't decide what it wants to be. It's either we're going to retell it slightly and try and make it better, but you can't do that by just a couple of Dalit voices and some sound effects. You need to fucking tighten up the whole thing. Or you're going to do it as faithful as you possibly can to the stage show. And I think it doesn't... We all know what the Daleks look like in The Ultimate Adventure. Mm -hmm. They look shit. Like They had five new models designed. They were shit. Which is fine. You know, it was a stage show. They moved around the stage how they wanted them to. The TARDIS looked different. But you have to commit. You're either... Because if you want to tighten this up and adapt it and make it better, you've failed. I mean, what? how would you even begin to tighten it up? But, I mean, it suffers from that thing that I think a lot of 80s Doctor Who suffers from, which it, it doesn't really get... And it's weird that it's Terence Dix. 
But then maybe it's just Terence Dix taking the paycheck and phoning it in. Yeah. I, I say maybe. It's Terence Dix taking the paycheck and phoning it in. <laughs> if if I had to hazard a guess, it would be a five doctor situation where Ben, ben Aronovich's script failed because it couldn't he couldn't do a musical mm-hmm. slash stage show, and they were like Terence, we've got two weeks, and you need to include these things, and he went righto and just fucking did it. Yeah, because the Daleks are essentially just robot baddies yeah. that want to bomb a peace conference. The Cybermen are just robot baddies for hire, yeah. and the mercenaries are just gruff blokes for hire. <laughs> It's, there's just nothing to it. The Daleks are very much in their kind of 60s guys. They get confused and they get pushed through doors and things like that easily. Yeah. That you know, uh, The Cybermen could be stormtroopers or anything. They don't have to be Cybermen. Yeah. And then Carl, I feel like it would be doing one-dimensional characters an injustice to call Carl one-dimensional. <laughs> like 0.2 dimensional? Is that a thing? Like... De- David Banks sounds drunk <laughs> through the whole recording. Like he just sounds like he'd had a few martinis in the big finished green room and came in and delivered five lines. And they were like, "There you go. Thanks for recreating your iconic part." Yeah, he's not great. I mean, he doesn't get much to do, uh, yeah. which I guess is why you can lose him to play the Doctor when John Pertwee's unable to be on stage. But of course, what you've got to remember is there was an understudy for David Banks who stepped up to play yeah. that part. Also, like I get the visual elements of this, like. If you see the pictures of like the Bar Galactica and all the mercenaries, there's like a draconian there, and there's all these weird and wonderful creatures. There's a vervoid as well. Yeah, there's a vervoid. Yeah. It's like whatever's in the cupboard. Yeah. Here, it's just a bunch of gr- yeah. grunting, and it's just like this. This makes no sense to us. Well, those, and on that subject, you know, Zog, great character, great name, and also the I can't remember the name of the planet now, but the one with the kind of bat, squeaky bird, yeah, bat people things. Um, I can see how that would play to an audience. Yeah. Colin Baker doing all the daft voices and mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff. Playing up to the crowd. Yeah, it's panto, isn't it? I can see it? how that would work. Yeah. yeah, totally see how that would work in an organic way. On audio, on a big finish, it just comes across as just a bit of shit. <laughs> I agree. Let's talk a little bit about Colin here. What do you think of Colin's performance? I mean, I, I guess it would have been in the play because not much I don't think much has changed apart from that he dropping an Evelyn reference yeah and obviously I would assume then had all the companions passed <laughs> yeah <they're, laughs> what you don't <laughs> what you don't realise is they update this play every year and just whatever whoever the new six doctor companion is they just drop it in they're like Colin you need to drop her name in for uh, Ultimate yeah. Adventure <laughs> so it's obviously the softer more affable version of the six doctor that we never really had on TV, mm. but that you kind of get in big finish, and I guess that works because you wouldn't, <laughs> much as you might want him to, you don't, you wouldn't have Colin Baker throttle Crystal <laughs> on stage in front of you know kids. Well, exactly. I actually think like so, it's a passable kind of version of the Doctor, and I think I know you're saying it's it feels like it's been written for Jean Pertwee, which it has. But I do think Terence can really do a default Doctor in a way that a lot of 80s writers can't. So when an Eric Saywood era script fails, it fails because they don't know how to write the Doctor. Terence Dix can always just go, no matter which Doctor says this dialogue, they'll sound vaguely Doctorish, certainly in that classic series, guys. I actually think he's a lot more likeable than he is in some of his stories on TV. Terence Dix certainly plays a a lot into that, of just that, that base level performance. So I think he's quietly pleasant. 
<laughs> in this, in yeah, a way that yeah. having him just having been fired from the job two years ago probably wasn't seen in 1989 because mm. the only time you ever really see him be really chilled is uh, Mysterious Planet and Mark of the Rani. The rest of the time, he's a bit of a cunt. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it is. I mean, that is quite a short turnaround, especially yeah. considering Tom's refusal to do the Five Doctors. Mm. I mean, I guess it's out of his friendship with JNT that Colin signed on to it. Yeah. I also think that Colin's always felt like he's had more to prove with the character. Mm. Tom Baker did seven years and truthfully did everything he was going to do with well, the role. Yes, yeah. Whereas Colin... As we, as we find out every year. <laughs> big but Colin always felt like he had more to do. He had a big seven-year plan. So I think he kind of jumped, jumped at it. And actually, when me and Jack did Paradise of Death, I wrongly said that was the first time that they brought back a Doctor that wasn't the current Doctor. So of course, the seventh Doctor happened and at this time, the third and the sixth Doctor both came back mm. and took on the role. So I think that's probably the first time outside of the TV show that that's happened. Let's talk about Delilah, who runs okay. the uh, Bar Galactica, played by Nadine Cox. This is the most interesting character here for me, because she wants to fuck Doctor Who. <laughs> Unashamedly so, she wants to have sex with Doctor Who. And she doesn't care if he's John Pertwee or Colin Baker. <laughs> She'll have either. So I was thinking this, and actually you've uh, obviously teed me up here unwittingly, so, um, you know, on your head be it. Um, I think this is the most influential piece of Doctor Who ever made. <laughs> Because you've got Delilah, yeah. who's essentially River Song. Yeah. She's a bit dodgy. She fancies the Doctor. There's a line the Doctor has where the Daleks tinkering with his ship, and he says, you know, the engine of my ship could turn your battle cruiser into atomic particles. <laughs> That's the end of Bad Wolf and the part of the ways. Yeah. There was another one as well. Oh, yeah, the T. The T being the kind of thing that diffuses the bomb and, yeah. you know, the tannins. Christmas invasion. You are right. Daleks and Cybermen. <laughs> Together at last. <laughs> Army of Ghosts. Also, first time a Dalek enters the TARDIS. They said it was in uh, Bad yeah. Wolf. It happened right here. It's not. Russell T. Right Davis, Stephen Moffat, they've just pulled it all from here, those fucking yeah. frauds. They were there every night taking fucking notes. There was no kids in the audience. It was all just future Doctor Who showrunners. Those motherfuckers. They've been rumbled. Right, you write clickbaity articles. You can get something out of this, right? <laughs> yeah, I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll turn that into something. <laughs> Ten ways the do- Doctor Who, the ultimate adventure, influenced the new series. That's why it's the ultimate adventure. Yeah. It's been reused so many times. Still no Zog, though. Still, still, no Zog. still no It's only a matter of time. But Rusty Davis always talks about the planet Zog. Sure. Because he was like, the worst example of Doctor Who is the planet Zog. Clearly going, what we don't need is Christopher Eccleston to have a squeaky... <laughs> tiny alien friend it's all there it's in the subtext we've talked a bit about the music but obviously the big number in this is called business is business <laughs> yes in which business is indeed business and that's sung by delilah and then everybody for some reason just carries on repeating that as if it's the doctor who catchphrase for the rest of it yeah. but do you know what i when i heard that because obviously the other songs are just kind of pretty bland 80s shit pop yeah um but there's some quite funny lyrics hit me we always maim to please <laughs> that's very good that is good what i like though if your government's not acting in the way you want it to then bleep us we'll help you stage a military coup <laughs> you couldn't imagine john barrowman singing that could you 
Issue politicians fail to keep their words when they're elected or simply don't turn out to be as good as you've ex- you'd expected. I mean, that that lyric stands up today. Should we call them? <laughs> should we? we should. So yeah. there was a lot of associated merchandise with the Ultimate Adventure, the tour, including the glossy brochure, which was updated halfway through to feature Colin Baker, clocks, posters, badges, baseball caps, colour photographs and T-shirts. Now, I've seen the baseball caps around, and I wear baseball caps quite a lot, and... I'm actually, I'm in the market for one of those. So if anybody's got one, <laughs> I'm there for it. Do you know what I'm really surprised about, though? That it's never been novelised. Well, t- Dix wanted to write a novelisation. Did he? I read. Who stopped him? I read that. I, I Target, they said, no, you're right. <laughs> no, you're ridiculous. I haven't verified that, to be fair. I just read that on, I think it was TARDIS Wiki or something. So I haven't found it anywhere else. But Well, I've got no idea why that didn't happen, but it didn't. Tell you what did happen, though. Doctor Who, The Companion Chronicles, Beyond the Ultimate Adventure. Oh, fuck off. Yep. Featuring Jason and Crystal and the Raston Warrior Robot. So, next time you come back, Mark... No. No, no, don't worry, don't worry. Even I... Can try that as well? Because that sounds like certainly do. Just say, oh, yeah, bring back the Raston Warrior Robot. (laughs) Or it'll be one of those things that's, like, written by Paul Mars or someone and it's actually really good. (laughs) No, it's Terrence Dix. It's going to be terrible. Oh, and Colin Baker is in it. Anyway. Oh, okay. Well, that's still not a big selling point. No offence to Colin. Even that is a spin-off too far for me. (laughs) And we did the Miranda comic. So, an archive gets opened somewhere in the Middle East, Iran, perhaps. Um, And inside, there are two piles of tapes. One of them, the complete space pirates. The other one, a pristine... HD, full multicam version of The Ultimate Adventure starring either John Pertwee or Colin Baker or David Banks, whichever one. There's only one, but it's the whole thing and it's pristine and you can see this, how it was originally intended. Are you taking The Space Pirates or The Ultimate Adventure? So, wait wait a minute, what's the situation here in which I'm being forced to choose? Is there, like... A military coup happening. There's a military coup. And it's I've a, only got time to take one of them. Yeah, your bag isn't big enough. Sure. You know the recent issues with apparently Doctor Who's been held hostage in the Middle East. They're going to let some hostages go, but not all of them. The other ones are getting destroyed. They change that story every <laughs> year. It was Robert Mugabe at one point. You know, it's yeah. whoever the fucking tyrant derogator is. It's, oh, they've got it. I think the Saudis have a lot more pressing concerns like, you know, lost Leonardo da Vinci paintings that may not be da Vinci paintings than uh, Doctor Who episodes, but we're going off on a tangent. You're not a real fan. <laughs> I'm taking the Space Pirates. Obviously, I'm taking the Space Pirates. Me too. More trouting over over that. Yeah. Definitely. But what, I'll tell you what I'll do, though, Dylan, as I'm taking the Space Pirates, you know, out, out from this archive, as the shutters are coming down, I'll reach my arm back and pull out a baseball cap. For <laughs> Thank you very much. So, one other question... Should Doctor Who do a musical episode? So John Barrowman and Billy Piper wanted to do one, didn't they? Yeah, but that, but that's kind of green room chat, isn't Just it? Just one of those, yeah. Depends who the Doctor is, doesn't it, really? I mean, Buffy did it. Yeah. And I feel like when Buffy did it, you're kind of just like, we've kind of done the musical episode of the of the sort of cult TV show. I don't know. I think it could work given the right script, yeah. the right songs. But it, as we've seen, that doesn't all... That never seems to come, come together. It feels like maybe like somebody who's 
a got experience of musicals, but also a serious experience of writing proper television drama might might give yeah. it a go. But again, just because you can doesn't mean that you should, which I think is a, a fine note to end it on. Do you want to plug your various goings on on the internet for the listeners? <laughs> on the time lash, it's either fortnightly, thrice weekly, or monthly, depending on our schedules. So yeah, on the time lash on Twitter, I occasionally write stuff about Doctor Who for various websites. So just follow me. I'm at Old Man Crondas on Twitter, um, and I occasionally get abuse from avatarless people who assume. <laughs> I don't like Jodie Whittaker, so that's that's always fun. The, the clickbait that you've been providing has been really quality consuming to the point that it now just appears in my feed all the time. But what I would say, like, <laughs> because a site is clickbait heavy, Mark does genuinely write some really interesting, quite cutting and funny articles. Like, it's not just, like, five actors who should be Doctor Who, and it's... Yeah, I don't yeah. want to do that. Yeah. So it, it's quite deep cut stuff. If you're If you're a fan of this yeah. podcast, I feel like... We essentially only do deep cuts, so uh, you'll yeah. be a fan of the articles. I try to subvert the medium. Exactly, yeah. it's perfect. Yeah, you're an artist. I'm the Stuart Lee of clickbait. That's that's my <laughs> that's my goal. So there we go. We've taken a meander through musical Doctor Who through the ultimate adventure, and we've come to the end and decided most of it's fairly pants. Next time. I'm going to be joined by Ian Martin from the All of Time and Space podcast. And it's an end of the era for the Seventh Doctor again. We're doing the BBC audio Death Comes to Time. And we're doing the DWM comic strip Grand Zero. So that's coming up next time. But until then, I've been Dylan. I've been Mark. We've listened to these things, so you don't have to send help. This has been Doctor (laughs) Who Too Hot for TV. Is there anything else you'd like to say about the ultimate adventure? Let me just consult my notes. Consult your notes, don't worry. My extensive my extensive notes on uh I don't think there is, to be honest. Fair enough. Uh please can we stop all this? That's just one note there that I don't even remember <laughs> that relates to. <laughs> It's, I feel like that's. I feel like that's. The, there is an actual line which is, "Please, can we stop all this?" And you're like, "Yeah, yeah, we could." <laughs>